This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. I want to first of all share a little bit of my qualifications for speaking on money. I raised six kids, and I believe that God's word is sufficient, and that's about it. So somewhere along the line, they became adults, so there were a lot of backpacks and groceries and uh, driver's ed fees, uh, and uh, four daughters got married, and the weddings were paid for. That's about it. But uh, um, I am very confident in God's word in every area. It's, it's, uh, it's what we're about, and... If you're looking for a seminar about how to be successful financially, this isn't it. If you're looking for a seminar that can help us on the path to becoming spiritually successful, that's what this is about. And I'm firmly convinced that money is one of God's best tools to be able to transform us because We use money and think about money all the time. If you go out for for lunch, you have to decide if you're going to bring your lunch, whether you're going to buy a cheap lunch or you're going to buy an expensive lunch. You're thinking about money. If you you have an opportunity at your job that you could earn more if you did more, you're thinking about it. If If you have a need, like you've got to replace a car, you're thinking about money. If you've got a want, you'd like a new bass boat, you're thinking about money. If, if you want something that is in our life constantly to, by which God could grow us, then finances would be one of those things. And I'm convinced it, it really, really is. So, what we're going to do is a lot of scriptures, passages. We will not, obviously, have time to get into all of them. My hope is that this handout that you have might become a study guide for the future. So don't feel bad that, man, we just breezed past that. Of course we did. And like Randy said, there's more, Jesus said more about money than, than heaven and hell. That's one of the examples because he really did use, got, Jesus really did use money to teach us many things. Um, I'm going to give you the three main points, just in case you get a sugar crash or something and <laughs> And that's all you get. So go ahead and fill in points one, two, and three so you know where we're going. The first principle is about stewardship. Stewardship means accepting that God owns everything. Down at the bottom of that page, the second principle is contentment. Contentment means gratefully trusting God with what he's already given us. Contentment. And the third principle on page two is about giving. And giving is about worshiping God, not helping God. If, if, if all you would capture are those three concepts, and I think there's a sequence to them, God will begin to transform your heart because God is, wants to use everything in our life to transform our heart. So, stewardship means God owns everything, meaning we don't own anything. And so, fill in the blanks. If you can, usually, you'll catch it on the, uh, the title of a slide if you want to fill those in. We don't own anything. Here's here's the reasoning. Um, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you make something, like I made a decorative mailbox one time, it's really nice. Made it out of leftover cedar siding. I made it. It's mine. Except for God owning everything. Uh, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. He made it. So everything in it. So anything you and I own fits into Psalm 24.1. God owns it. And therefore, what is our job? Genesis 2.15 described what happened. Lord, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Adam did not own the garden of Eden as God's garden, but he had a job, and his job was to take care of it. And that's really what uh, stewardship is about. If you can't take it with you, it's not really ours, you could call that yours, not really yours. That is the proof that you don't actually own anything because you can't take it when you die. And there's several verses, these are two. Uh, we come in naked, we leave naked, we bring nothing into the world, we take nothing from it. I think the passage I have in your uh, outline there is Job 121, the same thing. So funerals teach us something about money because clearly you can't take it with you. Um, Imagine if you, how many like Cabela's? Is that, that a deal? Okay, I'll use that one. I'm not a, I'm not a big hunter fisher, I'm more other sports. But imagine going to Cabela's, because when you go there, because my, my, my brother's a big Cabela's fan, and he just, it's like this huge place, everything you'd ever want for all of this hunting and fishing. Imagine if you were given a one-hour shopping spree in Cabela's. You can park your vehicle outside the front door, and you can have everything you can get in one hour. Everything you can personally run in and grab these guns, you can grab this, grab this, grab this. You can have everything. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? You just fill up the bed of your truck or your minivan. But now imagine this. At the end of an hour, you get to your truck and you die of a heart attack. That is just a compressed view of the reality of life. Because it's not one hour happens to be maybe, what, 70, 80 years. But really, that is what is happening in our life. And so we know that while we're trying to get this and this and this and enjoy this, it actually is compressed and we won't take it with us. Uh, so what are we to do with what God owns? And that's what stewardship is about. A steward's job is to be faithful so he can be trusted. Joseph in the Old Testament is a great story in so many ways, but clearly in two different places, God put him into a position where he managed something owned by others. In Potiphar's house, he was a slave, remember. His status never changed in Potiphar's house. He was always a slave, but yet Potiphar put him in charge and entrusted to his care everything he had. Later on, he would be the prime minister of Egypt, and Pharaoh says, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land. So he was a faithful steward, and 1 Corinthians tells us that's exactly what God is looking for us. In, there were, the context of 1 Corinthians 4 is about being a, a steward of the gospel, but it's true of everything that we have. We are called to be stewards. How do you know if God's ownership is theoretical or actual? Your attitude about the material things that you have under your care will reveal your true feelings about that. 
How easily do you loan something out of value? Your car, your bass boat, your motorcycle. Because if you are a steward instead of an owner, you realize, no problem, it's not mine anyhow. So if in any way God directs you to do that, you're okay. I remember when Priscilla and I were first married and going to Bible college and uh, my car that I bought, my, my dad bought half of it, I bought half of it, went to college, and a year later I got married and uh, still going to college. And uh, it was kind of like my baby. It's a 1972 Grand Torino. That's a Ford. Anybody knows what Grand Torino is? Uh, two-door. And I tell you, those are big two-doors. The doors are like this big. And uh, aluminum wheels, really nice car. Anyhow, that first year of marriage, uh, we actually had two cars, the Torino and a Vega. Bad memory, Vega. But um, we kind of needed two cars because my wife's work schedule and my part-time work was a little different in school and all that. So, but I had a friend named Scott, and uh, he was a married student as well, and they were, gonna, they were about to have a baby there in their eighth month, and he was telling me about uh, their car was, they had one car, it was not reliable. And it was having this problem, this problem. Just felt God kind of like. <sighs> so I let him use our Torino. And hoped like everything, he would not scratch up my baby. <laughs> and when he came back, I gave it to him clean. There was stuff in it. And I realized my attitude was not freely giving it. I had another experience with that. <laughs> we were married in uh, that first year, and we were at church one night. I don't know why Priscilla was driving, but she backed out and creased the fender. This is like in our first or second month of marriage. I just erupted. It was a very hard night, let's just say. <laughs> because I had to decide what is most valuable. Do we surrender what we have, because if it's God's, then the scratches and the dings and the loaning out is freely if that indeed is God's stuff. So if we are faithful as stewards, how does God see that? He will reward faithful stewards. Being a faithful steward doesn't mean that there's nothing you can have or enjoy, because, James 1, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But if you want to put it in your notes, the difference is that material things are gifts, not rights. And we tell ourselves over and over, I deserve, that's how we defend upgrading the fill in the blank. No, they're gifts from God. And even in this instruction to richer Christians, and by the way, everybody in this room by global standards is probably rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. There's so many good principles here who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if it has been God's gift to you, then it can be enjoyed. And the way you find out if it's a gift is, uh, I don't have this passage in my head right now, but I think it's in Psalms, that uh, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. If it's creating sorrow, it probably isn't God's gift. <laughs> you might have just made it happen. God rewards, I was getting ahead, faithful stewards. Um, if God uses money for spiritual purposes, I can think of no passage more powerful than what you find in Luke 16. It's a, it's a parable 
Jesus tells. And won't get into that parable. It would be a great study for you and your wife. Um, but it's a kind of a confusing parable in, 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 at first read. But it's about a shrewd servant who was about to be fired. And he went around and to, his, to his master's debtors and gave them a discounted rate to solve the, the debt. And his purpose was that after he was fired, he would then have friends. Jesus makes the parallel that in the same way we should use worldly wealth for making friends eternally. I think it's an evangelistic verse that we would use our wealth for eternal spiritual impact. But here's what he says. Let's read this together. That's why I printed it out for you. Whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. And, and the contrast here is worldly wealth and spiritual wealth. By the way, fill that in your blank. When God can trust us as stewards of financial wealth, he can trust us with spiritual wealth. That's how important these, this, this ownership by God is. If he can trust us as stewards with finances, he actually rewards us with something far greater, which is financial wealth. Okay, second line. Whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust us with true riches, meaning not God? And if we have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, what does that mean? That's our money. That's our material things. And what Jesus calls it here is someone else's stuff, meaning God's ownership. If we, cannot be, if we are not trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give us property of our own? If we're understanding this correctly, the property that you end up with that's really your own is the spiritual impact of your life. So we have to have a whole different mindset as to what our material things are doing. They are preparing us for that which is that it's, it's an investment in something that is eternal. God will reward faithfulness with finances. It's like a, a testing ground for how much can I trust you with in terms of spiritually. And it's not about the amount. So I don't know, maybe somebody here is a single dad and you've been through something rough and, and you've got a couple kids, you're trying to support them. You maybe have a second job to make it work and you still got to pay the child support because she has... I mean, you're, 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 you're struggling. But... You are adopting these principles. God owns everything. And so I'm going to work hard. I'm going to earn money. I'm going to do hard, earnest, good work. And then I'm going to give faithfully, out, proportionally, out of, out of what I have. And I'm going to spend wisely. I'm going to live with some of these principles of contentment. So is this a promise that you'll get rich? No, it's a promise that you will have spiritual impact. So your two kids that are watching you as a single dad in that situation will be seeing that you are honoring God and perhaps they will honor God because they saw you honor God. That would be eternal wealth. Could be that you're a CEO of a fairly large company. You're on a, you live on a completely different scale. You've been six figures for 20 years. Okay? And, and you're going to do the same thing, the same principles. You're going to uh, work hard to benefit the, the company or the shareholders or the employees, and you're going to give faithfully according to what you've been blessed, and you're going to spend wisely and with restraint and seek God's wisdom and 
what is, what is the, the wealth that, you, that Jesus is talking about for you? It, again, might be your children. It might be the fifth and sixth graders that you teach Sunday school, and you're having an impact in their lives, and you will see them having an eternal impact forever, and the, world, the, 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 the real wealth that God gave you because you were faithful with this financial wealth is the impact you had in those kids' lives. Something like that. So that's where stewardship is so vital as a spiritual training ground. Second one, contentment. Contentment means gratefully trusting God with what he has already given us. And the issue is that discontentment is a spiritual problem with an emotional basis. It's a spiritual problem with an emotional basis. Uh, A couple of... uh, References here to a, a, a bigger, wonderful story, that, or a difficult story that makes a wonderful point. King Ahab was a wicked king of Israel, married Jezebel, the ungodly pagan uh, in his life, and uh, he hardly ever did anything right. But he went through in chapter 20, this is 21, but in 20, he disobeyed God by not killing off the king of the enemies of Israel that they had defeated. And Elijah the prophet confronts him and says, you were supposed to destroy this guy, and you let him live, okay? Different times. And he went off to, the last verse, just before verse 1 here of chapter 21, is that he went off to his palace sulking. He had had emotional letdown. So what do you do when you have an emotional letdown? You go shopping, right? I mean, just admit, sometimes it's an emotion that drives our our purchases. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, the sulking about the the confrontation, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. If it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. Seems fair, but it's actually an ungodly thing if Naboth had complied. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's because God had given the land and certain people had, families had certain areas, it was an ungodly thing for Naboth to actually sell that land. Ahab just wanted it. Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, and he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He was such a mature guy. (laughs) He curled up in the fetal position, pouting, because he couldn't get what he wanted. He was used to getting what he wanted. Enter Jezebel. If Jezebel was any kind of wife at all, he said, she'd have said, seriously, man, give it up. This is, not, this is not what you should be having. Why are you pouting over that? You got everything in the world you want. In fact, he was a wealthy man. He had two palaces. He had one in Jezreel. He had one in Samaria. I think it's the one in Samaria. Uh, it says in, in uh, 1 Kings 24, 239 that it was inlaid with ivory, and they have uncovered that, archaeologists have, found a whole storeroom with some 200 pieces of ivory, statues and panels and, 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 and all kinds of ivory. That was, his, that was his luxury. And frankly, just about everybody at any material level has a temptation to a certain area of luxury. You can't afford ivory, you can't afford a big house, you can't afford the cars, but, but boy... You're going to eat steak. Or you're going to have the best technology. Or you're going to have the 
your, your shoes are going to be top of the line. I don't know what it is, but don't, you notice how whatever level we kind of pick our thing that that's what I've got to have the best of. His was, he could have anything, but his was ivory. Okay, so he was not used to being told no, but Jezebel, his wife, said to him, now do you govern Israel or not? You know, arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful, I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. I'll cheer you up, I'll get it for you. Emotion made him do this, and well, you know, you probably know the story, Jezebel ended up getting Naboth killed, and that's how he got the vineyard. But this is kind of a classic parenting failure, is we sometimes try to solve emotional struggles in our kids by giving them what they want. How do you get out of Walmart without them kicking and screaming? Get in the candy bar, right? I hope you weren't trained that way, but if you, if you were, it's something to overcome, and if you do, it's something you've you got to realize you cannot address emotional needs with financial solutions. Top of the next page. If your spouse agrees with your purchase, is it God's will? Trick question, right? <laughs> okay, if she doesn't agree, it might not be God's will. That, but if she does agree, does that mean it is God's will? Jezebel agreed. It could be something you could call mutual greed. We play these games sometimes in our marriage where I'll let her remodel the bathroom. I'm going to buy a new pickup. Right? In other words, I'll let you have your greed so I can have my greed instead of a husband and wife saying, we are stewards. What does God have for us? Another argument for a single checkbook, but that's another time. Um, we have to come together on these things. Our contentment reveals if we are self-centered or God-centered. A lot of different passages talk about serving God or money. Uh, you can be a friend of the world or an enemy of God. You can love the world. You can love God. It is painted in black and white that we have to know where our devotion really is. And contentment, that's why contentment is so crucial. It reveals if our devotion and priority is God or not. The bottom line, what, what, when you think about what caused discontentment, another word for discontentment is greed, a reason for our discontentment is generally our pride. I feel better about myself if I have such and such. Raising six kids, we often had three teenagers, so sometimes we had a total of three or four, or I think one time we had five cars that had to park in the winter up in the driveway or in the garage. Um, so we had, I had, I had, I've always had kind of a, a reasonably nice main car, okay? It's okay. Uh, but when you start adding like two or three teenage drivers, you buy what is called a school car. You, you understand that? It's a totally different standard, isn't it? A school car looks different, sounds different, and is about seven or eight years older sometimes. At least ours was. I remember thinking, go to the, go to the mobile station and, and fill up gas, if I was in my main car, I didn't even think about it. I'm not thinking about that. But I remember a couple of times when I went to go put gas in one of the school cars, and I drive up in this thing that it has that rattle thing because of the whatever, the muffler thing and, the, and then, then the belt thing, and it's got rust on both sides. 
I had like this urge to tell the guy who just got off the freeway, I want you to know this is not my main car. <laughs> I have a nicer car at home. This is my, my school car. I just want you to know that. Isn't that, isn't that. Doesn't pride drive us to not be content? So what is God directing us to? Pride is always horizontal focused. And stewardship and contentment is always spiritually focused. So, to overcome discontent requires that we ask this question, what is God teaching us? Because we all struggle with it. God's not going to waste it. What is he trying to teach us? Great passages, again, worth our study. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's possible to be godliness and content. Those, those fit. I'm not possible. That, that is. And, and after this great passage, all of 6 through 10 is great there, but he ends up and says, but as for you, O man of God, Paul tells Timothy, flee these things. Fleeing the love, the, the love of money is the root of all evil is in that passage. If you flee the love of money, then you can pursue godliness, righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We have to realize this is part of being a friend of God or being a friend of the world, loving God, loving uh, money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he said, I've never leave you nor forsake you. Every time we struggle with contentment, if it's because of something we can't afford to buy, the issue is, do we trust God as our provider? Because if God wanted me to have this, he could provide for it. He would, if we're married, he would bring our minds together to, to, to purchase it. And it wouldn't create a bunch of trouble because we go that much deeper in debt and now we feel like we can't give, we can't live generously, we can't, you know, we're, we're going to be fighting over things. So do we trust God as our provider? You see how it draws us vertically to the Lord. Or Philippians 4, I've learned the secret, Paul said, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. He had been in both situations and probably most of you have had times that were better or less <laughs> good in terms of finances. I can do all this. This is usually the verse that's translated, but I like this one. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That verse is so often lifted out of context, like I can win the Super Bowl. Surely if there's a Christian on the team that wins tomorrow, they're going to pull out this verse, which I'm glad they do in one sense. But the real context is I can do what? Through Christ who gives me strength. I can be in plenty or in want. And so contentment points back to stewardship because either way I realize God's at work in my finances and I can please him because he's the owner. And so if I've got a lot, that means I've got a chance. If I have little, we get that usually first. If I have very little, I need to rely on God for strength. What if we have a lot, a lot in excess? I've got to trust him for guidance. How do you want me to use what you have given me? So contentment. Uh, I think I have I filled in all the blanks, haven't I? All right. The, the bonus of contentment is that we can live in peace. And God wants us to have peace. I like the way Dave Ramsey titled his Financial Peace University. That's the, that's the title of his, of his ministry. God's desire is that we would have peace about our finances. And we have peace only if we understand God is the steward. God is the one who owns it all. In high school, I uh, worked one summer setting up a car dealership. I, I, mean, I was a 16-year-old runaround guy, 
But I got to drive the company's brand new pickup, brand new Ford pickup, had the new car smell and all. Then after work, I'd get into the school car my dad provided and, and ride home. In college, I had a job where I was a parts runner for a, a trucking company, and I also drove a Ford pickup, about 12 years old and totally beat up. <laughs> Working for mechanics for some reason, but the thing barely could keep going. In reality, I wasn't too bothered about either one. I wasn't too excited about the new one. I wasn't terribly bent out of shape driving an old one. You know why? They weren't mine. I could be content because I was just using them to do the job. And we can be content. And so if, if money goes out the door because of transmission, if, if money goes out the door because of, of an illness, what, what are, something unplanned, something you have to replace or whatever it is, do you realize the peace it gives you to know that it's not my money? So this circumstance, even in some cases because it was a mistake of our own, is that God is teaching me peace and teaching me contentment and wants to give me peace. All right, giving is about worshiping God, not helping God. Do you know why you give presently? That's the fill in the blank. Understand why you currently give. Um, charitable giving is an unfortunate term, but that's what it is. Charitable, th picture this. Charitable giving, the mindset is, I am superior, so I'm going to give you something because you have a need. What have I just done with me? Fill in the blank, pride. In other words, I am the superior one. Giving in Scripture is exactly the opposite. Giving, if you jump down to the next point, actually, the worship mindset is that God is superior, and so my mindset has to be humility. So why do you give? Here's what Jesus was pointing out to the Pharisees. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will be warding you. Do you see the horizontal and the vertical there? One of the main reasons people give is to be recognized for it. 20, 30 years ago, our church made the decision when somebody one time donated something, they wanted a plaque. It was, it was a well-meaning thing that husband had died and they wanted to put a plaque on something that they gave to the church. And we thought, and we thought, and we prayed and said, you know what, we don't want to go down that road. No plaques. Acknowledging the giver. Even more, we want it to be a God thing. And so, do we honor God? Recognition. Self-pride is another. Self-pride is when nobody else knows, but I'm, it, I give because I'm, I feel real good about myself when I give. It's still pride. Uh, needs and guilt are kind of the same thing. Um, I feel guilty that these people have nothing, and so I give to them. It's a better motive. But if that's the motive, it's still not vertical, or tax deductions or whatever. Uh, no, giving is worship that honors God, not me. Deuteronomy, the instructions when they came to the land and they had, they're going to have your own land and your farms. Here's what you do, Moses says. You tell God this as you bring your offering. I bring you the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. The word worship is actually, in most translations, I think, say that, bow. So, 
Do you see how giving is, first of all, it's worship, it's honoring God, not helping him, and it's recognizing stewardship, you gave it to me, and then it's, I'm humbling myself before you. So giving is worship, and it, that's why we give first and not left over. And uh, that leads to that next principle. <clears throat> giving as worship is about trusting God. Trusting God. If, if God owns it all, and he does, then when I give to him, I am saying that I actually trust you with the fact that I'm going to have less. It's all yours, but I'm going to trust you because I'm going to give this portion, this proportionate chunk is going to go back to you for me to worship you as the giver and acknowledge that I'm trusting you. Uh, you may uh, know the, here's a story of these two different widow stories. One was where, uh, you remember perhaps the story of the widow who gave these two tiny coins and uh, this offering was not actually an obligation. This was not their tithe. It was a big box they had by the temple. And they could, at Passover, this was during Passover time, they could throw some money in, and that was like a, an, an offering in above. It, it was a worship offering from the heart. It's closer to New Testament type of giving instead of an obligation kind of a thing. And uh, so some of the rich people, they put in quite a bit of money. Jesus actually doesn't criticize them. But there was this widow through in these two tiny coins they're called lepta. They weighed a gram each. Our penny weighs three grams. Two pennies, so two, two, two tiny coins smaller than our pennies. And Jesus said, they contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Her confidence in God was that God would supply. It doesn't tell the rest of the story. Do you think God took care of her? I'm convinced God took care of her. The other story is uh, Elijah, during a time of famine, first of all, God led him to this brook, Kidron, where he could get the water, and God miraculously sent ravens to feed him. Then the brook dried up, and God sent him to Sidon, where the famine was there as well. And he comes outside this, this, this city, and there's a widow, and he asks her for food, and she says, I can't. I'm down to a little handful of flour and a little bit of oil. I was going to make one final cake, and then me and my son were going to eat it and then die. There was no safety net of welfare. And, and, and uh, Elijah said to her, no, give it to me first. This is directed by God. Give it to me first, and God will take care of you. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't read it. Do not fear, go and do as you have said, first, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. Afterward, make something for yourself and your son. She went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Do you see what God is teaching? When we acknowledge his ownership, and therefore we will have contentment and peace, we acknowledge his ownership, we give and he will supply. One final thing. Uh, next page. We won't cover the bottom part of page three, but I want to leave it there for you. But top of page three. Giving as worship is motivated by grace, not guilt. So if it's vertical instead of horizontal, 
oh, they expect me to give or whatever. It is motivated by grace, not guilt. And that also reveals our view of God because sometimes it's like, oh, God's going to be angry at me if I don't give. I better get. That's your view of God that you have to keep earning his approval. Instead, what we find is this. Uh, if you want to, I think there's a fill in the blank. I won't get to that one, but the Macedonians are an example to the Corinthians. They're overflowing joy. They were impoverished themselves, but they gave, verse 4, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. So they were motivated by grace, and so they had joy. But in this crucial passage, and if you did a study of, of what is New Testament giving, look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But here's the ultimate motive. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So think about he was in heaven, had everything. He became poor, that's the cross. So that you, through his poverty, the cross could become rich. Which way? Spiritually. We would have eternal life. And so that becomes our driving motive. I want to take a little time for questions, so I'm just going to give you these answers. Um, this actually comes from this passage. How to set up a specific practice of giving. This crucial passage, the first day of the week, each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Um, the principles we see, those three blanks, are giving first. The reason for the first fruits, by the way, was because before the whole harvest had been gathered in, and I grew up on a farm in Kansas, so I know that after you've had the first tenth of your, of your crop in, you have no idea what the weather's going to do. It could still be hailed out. But they gave, he said, when you've, when you've gathered that first fruits together, then you give that to the Lord. What do you have now? Zero. You just gave everything. You gave the first tenth. Now you have to trust God that the rest of the crop is still going to be in the field. So first, give first and then give regularly. Uh, Paul was collecting for a famine uh, relief in Jerusalem. He said, so every week, little at a time, give regularly. And then he understood there are more wealthy and less wealthy Christians. So in keeping with your income. Um, the other principle from 2 Corinthians, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. If, we, if my dad, when he sowed wheat, would like put a third of the, the germinated wheat, the, the, the wheat seed in there, he'd get a third of the crop. So there is a proportional thing. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So that leads to a practical question about tithing. I don't believe that tithing is a New Testament principle. Uh, proportionate giving is. But we have complete freedom. And uh, so my note is that uh, this Old Testament requirement may be a starting place for some, might be a goal for others, but it should not be a rule nor a restriction in this age. We are to give as God leads, motivated by his grace. Uh, why would you stop at 10 will be the question God wants to ask some people. And others, it'd be like, why don't you work towards a percentage that costs you so that you're exhibiting your trust in God? I'm convinced that God blesses us as we give, only not like the prosperity preachers teach. Their idea is you give to get, particularly give to their television ministry, and then you will get whatever you, know, you want. Uh, those five uh, points at the bottom there, 
talks about how, um, I'll just, just, I can just read them. Here's what God promises when we give generously. We'll have enough to live on. God will multiply our impact. Number three, we'll have enough to give more. So it's not give to get, it's give to get to give more. Four, people will thank God for us supplying their needs or help. We are meeting needs. And five, people will pray for you. Questions? Comments? Thoughts? That means I left them out. Uh, page two. Oh, give first to express our trust. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yep. See my notes? That, that's, that's in pink. I'm supposed to recognize that. That's in pink. And God asks us to give first to express our trust. About the rest, correct. You mean in terms of stewardship, contentment, or giving? Or do you mean how to give? Okay. I think to be... Abs- Go ahead, keep... keep. It's kind of an all-at-once all kind of a thing. And by the way, the, at the bottom of that last page, there's a resource you can look at. My, uh, i got a series on stewardship in, uh, that's more complete in uh, Bible.org. But so one of the chapters in there is about working hard, spending wisely, uh, saving. All of these are part of stewardships. Stewardship. That am I a good manager? So if we, if we fail to work hard, obviously... Now I'm not being a good manager because God wanted to give me more, but I'm, I'm lazy or whatever. You know, uh, spending wisely. Then there's so many ways that we can be more wise in our spending. If you, if, you, if, you, if you go to McDonald's once a week, all year long, add it up. Take it 52 times what for your family? Now do it three times a week. Take it times three. And start saying, is that really what's in my budget? Is, is that I'm going to go out to eat this many, you know, there's just so many different, so you want to be thinking about as a steward, what's a good stewardship? What if you can afford to do that? What if, what if you, know, you know, go down the road and now you'll make three times as much money? To be a good steward, yeah, you might be able to buy some nicer foods and eat out a little more often, but wouldn't stewardship still be kind of, you start to work these principles in, you know, that kind of thing? If you're asking about, where to start with giving? Your local church. Uh, that's where you are involved in what God is doing. And, and um, just tell, I'll just tell you our, my, my family, my, my story with Priscilla. We were 19 and we were married, and uh, I, I looked this week, what did we make that first full year of marriage? Because you get your Social Security record, you know? Went to year one. I worked part-time, made 5000 my wife worked full-time at the Christian college and made $7,500 for working 40 hours a week. That's how old I am. Uh, 40, 40 hours a week. So we made about 13 grand. 
But that was the year at our church someone came and taught these principles. And we said, you know, we want that spiritually. And so we began to tithe to the church and took on two missionaries and just have moved, moved on from there. That was the most important spiritual decision we ever made in that first year of marriage. It, it, it also has taught us to trust God as our provider, and, and he's been very, very faithful to us. But it was a spiritual decision to say, we only make 13. And what we can contribute to our church is pretty tiny <laughs> in terms of its budget. But it's what God used to just unfold this throughout our 42 years now. Anything else? I don't know if we put the cut. If you need to go to lunch, starts now, I think, right? I'm happy to visit longer till the next uh, next seminar starts or whatever too. So, thank you.